Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are two parts of the mind, the conscious and the unconscious. While the former dominates your attention, the latter actually occupies far more of the brain, influencing your mood, generating inspiration, and making you who you are, all behind the scenes. My guests would argue that to become all you're meant to be, you have to make your unconscious mind your ally, and that this may be life's most important task. His name is Daniel Z. Lieberman, and he's a psychiatrist and the author of Spellbound, Modern Science, Ancient Magic, and the Hidden Potential of the Unconscious Mind. Today on the show, Daniel first offers an overview of the nature, function, and study of the unconscious. From there, we discuss Carl Jung's perspective on the unconscious and his ideas around its archetypes and shadows. We then get into the way that things which are connected to magic and the supernatural, like fairy tales and tarot cards, can be seen as manifestations of the energy of the unconscious and as age-old attempts to confront and understand it. We end our discussion by talking about the quest for individuation, which requires bringing together the conscious and the unconscious minds, and how to go about tapping into the power of the unconscious to become a kind of magician yourself. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash unconscious. All right, Daniel Lieberman, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So you are a clinical professor of psychiatry at George Washington University, and we had you on the podcast a few years ago to talk about a book you co-authored called The Molecule of More, which is all about dopamine and its influence in our lives. You got a new book out, and it's called Spellbound. And in this book, you explore the unconscious in our lives and its connection to, and this is interesting, a magical worldview. So how did you go from dopamine to the unconscious and, uh, you know, fairy tales and mystical numbers and things like that? Well, you know, it's all based on the work I do as a psychiatrist. It really follows the aphorism on the Temple of Delphi, which you're probably familiar with, and that is know thyself. I got a lot of wonderful feedback about the molecule of more in which people said that it enabled them to better understand what was going on in their brain and not necessarily identify with all of those thoughts, all of those desires, that they have the opportunity to evaluate them, judge them, and decide what's best for them. In Spellbound, I take that to the next level because there is so much going on in our head that comes out of our unconscious. And we have a tendency to either ignore it or to identify with it. But I think, in fact, the most important thing is to recognize that in some ways it's coming from an alien place. We need to learn to understand it and to accommodate it. Okay, so your, your whole, the dopamine book kind of helped people understand there's, there's something going on in their brain, right? It's like why they want to do things and why they get tired of things that they once enjoyed. And this led to this idea of the unconscious. I think all of us, I mean, this idea of the unconscious has filtered into the popular culture and it, we know about it, but I don't think a lot of people understand it from like uh, what you do, like this research-backed approach to the unconscious. So as a psychiatrist, what is the unconscious? The unconscious is any brain activity that we're not directly aware of and that we don't have direct control over. And that spans a very wide range of things. So it can be as simple as the parts of your brain that control your blood pressure, your heart rate, and your hormone secretion. Or it can be as sophisticated as the parts of your brain that generate inspiration in which it hands you incredibly complicated knowledge that seems to come out of nowhere. 
And how does this unconscious differ from conscious thought? Conscious thought, it tends to be very linear. It's based on language. You know, when we think in our own head, we generally think with language. And it's rather slow. And it's good at solving problems with logic. It's really what makes us human, what sets us aside from the other animals. The unconscious, on the other hand, is very, very fast. It does all kinds of different things in parallel, and it doesn't use language. It's more likely to use emotion. And the unconscious is really the animal part of human beings. And I think the split really emphasizes the strange aspects of the human condition, that we are part angel, part animal. And I think that those track pretty nicely with the conscious and the unconscious minds. Yeah, so the, I think you talk about in the book, the conscious thought is, is typically top down, right? So like we are dictating how, how our attention is directed. Unconscious thought is, is bottom up. Yep, that's right. We say top down because conscious thought seems to uh, arise in the frontal lobes, right behind the forehead. And the commands that we make to our body and other things, they flow downwards, whereas the unconscious represents deeper structures, and those come upwards into the prefrontal cortex where we become aware of them. So you mentioned unconscious thought. We use that to for bodily functions, breathing, heart beating, sleeping, just reflexes. But you said they can get really sophisticated. I mean, what are some examples of more sophisticated uses of the unconscious? I think that one we're all familiar with is the gut feeling. Think back to when you were choosing a college to go to. You visited a bunch of them, you read the literature, and you were probably absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of variables that you had to sift through, how well it was rated, what you thought of the dormitory, the dining hall, etc., But at some point, you probably got a gut feeling about which one was right for you. And you probably had an enormous amount of confidence in that gut feeling, but you had no idea where it came from. And I think the gift of fear guy, Gavin DeBecker, he did studies on firefighters, right? They can look at a building and they can tell whether this building is about to collapse. And it's based on, there's nothing really top down going on. It's just based on years of experience. They say, well, the fire's doing this. The building looks like this. I better avoid going to that building because it will probably collapse on me. Yeah. And it's the same with doctors. We call it pattern recognition, that we think that we're applying information we got from lectures and textbooks. But in fact, the best doctors are ones who have seen the most patients and unconsciously they recognize patterns and that gives them the answer in terms of treatment. So the conscious thoughts typically, it starts top down. So like the prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex is the part that developed last in our evolution. And that's where conscious thought typically is at. Like where's unconscious thought taking place at? All the rest of the brain. Consciousness represents a tiny sliver of our brain activity. It's, uh, you may have seen the metaphor of the iceberg where you've got a tiny bit floating above the surface representing the conscious mind and then the vast majority of it underneath the water. And in fact, it's been estimated that the unconscious mind is able to process information a half a million times more rapidly than the conscious mind. And that's why it uses such a large part of the brain compared to the conscious mind. Because it's doing things in parallel, correct? It's doing things in parallel. Yeah, it's it's got the heart rate. It, it's It's managing literally millions of muscle fibers to maintain your posture. And it's doing a whole bunch of other things besides. So this idea of the the conscious and unconscious was first developed probably or made popular by Freud. What was Freud's idea of the conscious and unconscious and how they interacted with each other? Freud viewed the unconscious mind as essentially a place where the conscious mind put things that were unacceptable to it. And so primarily sexual urges. Freud really tended to trace everything back to the sexual drive, but also things like anger and hatred and murderous feelings. And so for Freud, the unconscious was really the cesspit of the very worst of humanity. And then one of his students was this guy named Jung, and he kind of, he took Freud's idea of the conscious and unconscious, but he did something different with it. What? How did he change this idea? So, 
Carl Jung also realized that we, we tend to do this. We tend to reject the worst parts of us and push them down into the unconscious. And he called that aspect of the unconscious the shadow. But he realized that there was far more to it. Whereas Freud derived all of unconscious behavior from the sex drive, Jung looked at other animals and he looked at the complexity of their instincts. For example, ants form colonies and, and they're farmers. They raise lichen that they eat. They're ranchers. They raise aphids that produce a sugary liquid that they can get nutrition from. He looked at the weaver bird, which weaves these incredibly complex nests. And he said, if these animals have such complex instincts, it's just not reasonable to think that human instinct all flows from the simple sex drive. And he began exploring human instincts. And just as the human brain is far more complicated than animal brains, he found that human instincts are also far more complicated. And he realized that the unconscious encompassed so much more than what Freud thought. And since then, Freud and Jung, they're looked, I mean, I guess today they're looked at askance. They think, okay, they, they had some interesting ideas, but it's it's theoretical. It's almost like metaphysical, philosophical. There's nothing, there's really no hard data. What's the state of the research in the unconscious today? The researchers are approaching the unconscious the way any good scientist does. And that is you collect data and you approach it from an empirical standpoint before you begin to put together theories. Freud and Jung didn't have access to the same kinds of research tools that we have today. And so really the only data they had to go on was their experience with their patients. And so they did a lot of theorizing and a whole lot less data collection. Today, it's the opposite. And it's very, very helpful to have that data. And I included a significant amount of it in the book. But the problem is that even today, hundreds of years after Freud and Jung, our ability to study the brain empirically is still extremely primitive. People have said that the human brain is probably the most complex structure in the entire universe. And so psychiatry as a science is a little bit behind some of the other specialties like cardiology, for example, simply because our organ is so complicated. So neuroscience has shed some light on the unconscious, but it's still at a very early stage. So how do researchers study the unconscious? Because the unconscious, you're not aware of it, right? I can see there's studies where you can study the conscious, right? Everyone knows like the marshmallow test, which is basically a study in self-control, which is the study of the conscious, right? You put a marshmallow in front of a kid and you tell them, well, if you don't eat that marshmallow for a certain amount of time, we'll give you more marshmallows. And so you can actually see what's going on. But the unconscious, like how do you tell if what's going on in the unconscious when you can't, the person doesn't even know what's going on? It's difficult. It's difficult. There's been different ways that it's been approached. Often it involves tricking the conscious mind to make it think like the task is something other than is actually being measured. And then with the conscious mind doing something else, what you're really measuring is what the unconscious mind is coming up with. But they've come up with other ways as well. As I mentioned, the conscious mind has a pretty small bandwidth. And so another thing that scientists do is they overwhelm the bandwidth of the conscious mind so that only the unconscious is free to work through a problem or a task. Are there any studies that stand out to you that can kind of exemplify what they do to look at this unconscious stuff? You know, one that comes to mind is what I call the Amsterdam apartment study. This was a study in which they used the strategy of overwhelming the conscious mind. They showed volunteers, I believe it was three or yeah, four apartments, and they gave them a whole list of features of each apartment, more than a dozen for each one. And then they asked them, which apartment do you think is the best? Now, the way that they had set it up was that one was objectively better one was objectively worse, and the other two were in between. And what they did was they divided them up into three groups. The first group, they said, okay, read the descriptions, and then bam, make a snap decision right away. And they didn't do very well. They picked the undesirable one as often as the desirable one. It was really random chance. 
The second group, they allowed the conscious mind to work on it. They said, read the description. Now we're going to give you three minutes to work your way through the problem. Try to figure out which is the best one. They had the same experience as the snap deciders. It was basically at random. The third group, after they had them read the descriptions, they distracted them by having them solve anagrams. That's when that's like a word jumble. You jumble up the letters and you have to figure out what the original word was. That takes up all the bandwidth of the conscious mind. And so in that case, for those three minutes, only the unconscious mind could work on the problem. And those people chose the desirable apartment at a rate better than chance. So that's interesting. So it sounds like the the conscious is really good at simple linear problems, but the unconscious, it's better at solving those problems that are really complex, right? When there's a lot of factors involved. That's right. The other advantage that the conscious mind has is that it can come up with precise answers. The answers the unconscious mind come up with tend to be impressionistic. For example, if you're thinking about entering into a business venture with someone, you might ask your unconscious mind, can this person be trusted? And you'd get an impressionistic gut feeling kind of an answer, but you'd want your conscious mind to calculate the potential return on your money. And those gut those gut impressions they're based on it's pattern recognition you think back well what this what is this this person match up with trustworthy people that i've experienced in the past that's right and the unconscious is picking up on all kinds of things that the conscious mind is missing the unconscious mind might be noticing that people who hold their head in a certain way or walk in a certain way are more or less trustworthy and we have no idea what kind of data it's working with, but we do know that the stuff it comes up with is often better than what the conscious mind can come up with. What point you made is that in our materialistic world where we, we put a primacy on the conscious, which is, again, the conscious mind is great. It allows us to do a lot of great things, but we downplay the unconscious. But what research is showing is that by downplaying the unconscious and how we interact with the world, it actually makes understanding the world harder, even the scientific world. And you gave this, I thought this was really interesting. Scientists who are researching animals or even just objects, there's this tendency that you want to be just focused on the data and you don't want to like, anthropomorphize the animals. Like think that they're like Disney creatures, right? That they have personalities. But the research shows that when they don't do that, they actually make worse decisions or worse conclusions about the data. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, the unconscious mind does have this tendency to anthropomorphize, to treat things as if they were human beings. You know, a lot of people talk to their cars. If you have a favorite shirt, you might not want people to mistreat it, not because it's going to get damaged, but because you have this kind of unconscious sense that it has feelings. And we do that with animals more than anything else. And some scientists wrote that they said anthropomorphizing animals is actually the cardinal crime of the animal researcher. And the reason is that animals' brains simply don't work the way human brains do. And if we assume that they do, we are going to make all kinds of mistakes. And so these primate researchers at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center, famous center, decided that this was a reasonable criticism. And so that they decided that for a period of two years, they were not going to do any anthropomorphizing at all. They were just going to simply record the behavior straight. And they were pretty surprised at what happened. Their brains were not able to make sense of the animal's behavior. They could no longer distinguish individual animals and understand their behavior. When they allowed themselves to go back to anthropomorphizing, everything fell into place. And once again, things became intelligible. And and so I think that the takeaway lesson from that is that our unconscious mind is not perfect. It's going to lead us into errors. It's going to make us see the world in a way that is not always factually true. But this is what we got. And if we try to reject it because we want a perfect understanding, the opposite is going to happen and our understanding is going to completely fall apart. Yeah, you even highlight like engineers and physicists will do this with objects or particles. Like, well, this particle is acting weird or cranky and it helps them understand what's going on, the data they're seeing. 
Yeah, that's right. Particle physics, when they have trouble finding a particle, they call it shy. Meteorologists talk about raging storms. Doctors talk about stubborn infections and aggressive tumors. When I was a resident, there was a faculty member who tried to get other doctors to stop doing that because they said, look, if you call this tumor aggressive, you're going to jump to conclusions that aren't true. You need to understand it from a biochemical point of view. And everybody said, yeah, what you're saying is logical. But in fact, based on what we know today, he was wrong because what he was doing was handicapping his own brain by not allowing it to function at its best. So again, the unconscious, it can lead you astray, but it can provide useful insights. And the goal is, I guess what the research is suggesting is learning how to tap into the unconscious without being led astray. I think so. Or I think maybe a more provocative way of putting it is that we have to accept the fact that we will be led astray. You know, just like nothing is perfect and we don't expect perfection from things and the unconscious mind is the same. If we don't rely on it, we're not going to be using our full brain. We're not going to achieve our full capacity. If we do rely on it, we are going to make occasional mistakes, but we don't really have much of a choice. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. So let's get into this magic part of your book, Spellbound. And so what you do is you take a look at the work of Jung and see how this idea of the unconscious is connected to a magic worldview. How did Jung see the, the, the unconscious and sort of the, I'm going to call it the magic worldview. How, how are they connected? So I think it's helpful if we start by reviewing some of the things we talked about that the unconscious does. So the unconscious is responsible for emotion. It it can make us the happiest person in the world. It can throw us into a rage. It can make us hate the people that we love. The unconscious is responsible for inspiration. It can inspire a work of art. It can inspire a scientific breakthrough. Traditionally, these kinds of experiences have been attributed to the gods. They've been attributed to supernatural creatures, gods and goddesses, spirits and demons. And so Jung's insight was that all of these stories we have about magic, myths, folklore, fairy tales, these are actually stories that shed light on what goes on in the unconscious mind. And because they've been refined over millennia, These are actually the most sophisticated tools we have to understand the unconscious mind and learn how to come to terms with it. Okay, so what he did is he looked at cultures from around the world, the stories, the myths, the religions, et cetera, to see what they all had in common. And then from there, you can kind of make these conclusions about, well, maybe this is is something about the unconscious. That's right. It's highly suspicious when you have cultures that are different in so many ways, telling stories about the supernatural that have lots and lots of things in common. And what Jung concluded was that just as all human beings have a common physiology, we've got two arms, two legs, one nose, one mouth, etc., we also have a common psychology. Our our brains are all based on pretty much the same DNA, and that leads to a common psychology. And so based on that, it's not surprising that the most important themes that stories were made about are the same in all cultures. Is this what he called the collective unconscious? 
Exactly. The collective unconscious and the themes of the archetypes. Well, let's talk about archetypes. For, for Jung, what, what is an archetype? An archetype is a kind of an instinct. It's a pattern of thought that we're born with, that we don't have to learn. It's part of the common physiology that we all share. Now, the way that the archetypes manifest themselves, though, are going to be different for each person. And so Jung compared the archetype to sort of a water course. This directs the direction of the water, but the water itself is going to be different for everyone. So the archetypes are the basic psychological, instinctual foundations that all humans have in common. So what are some examples of archetypes? I think the most important archetype is the mother archetype. And one of the things about archetypes is that they are so big, so powerful, and so influential that it's not possible for us to consciously apprehend the archetype in full. And I think we can see that with the concept of motherhood. Think of all the books, all the stories that have been told that involve mother and how each one of them reveals a different aspect of one's relationship to one's mother. The symbolism of mother includes nutrition, it includes love, it includes encouragement. It also includes things like criticism and restrictions and being smothered. It's an enormous concept, and it's impossible to delineate all of the things that it represents. So you mentioned a word, you mentioned symbols. I think sometimes when people hear the word archetype, they think it's a symbol of something bigger. But you actually made the distinction. There's a distinction between symbols and archetypes. So what's the difference between the two? So a symbol, in a way, is something that we can see with our senses, but is connected to the archetype. It's like an energy transformer that takes the energy of the archetype and makes it available to the conscious mind. So one example I give in the book is a wedding ring. And I should mention, I think it's helpful actually to start by distinguishing symbols from signs. Signs are things that have a very clear meaning and they have a one-to-one correspondence with the things that they signify. So for example, the letters O-R-A-N-G, that signifies the fruit, orange, Everybody knows exactly what it means. The golden arches signify McDonald's. There's no ambiguity about what that is. Symbols, on the other hand, point to archetypes. And archetypes are unknowable. And so what the symbols symbolize are also unknowable. It's not something that we can fully capture in words or fully understand. So let's think about a wedding ring. There there are things about the wedding ring that we can understand, but the kinds of feelings it provokes are often things that can't be put into words. So for example, if somebody lost their wedding ring, well, they could just go to the store and buy another one, but it's not that simple. There are some things about the wedding ring, some feelings that it triggers that go beyond simply a band of gold. It taps into the unconscious, and as a result, it's a very potent symbol, a very potent magical object in some ways. Uh, so I've read the books, I'm sure some of our listeners have read them, uh, by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. It's King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. And it's like rediscovering the archetypes of the mature masculine. And that's kind of shaped my idea of what I think about archetypes. And I get, like they had different archetypes, like the king archetype represented like the like power and potency and creation and order and like symbols of that archetype would be things like a, a crown or a scepter or something like that. Is that, is, are we on the same page? Is that kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. And think how it must have felt um, to King Charles to have that crown placed upon his head. I think it must have triggered incredibly intense feelings that he could not fully understand. So I think the crown is a great example of a symbol. All right. So yeah, archetypes is like it's energy in like or sort of thought patterns in our unconscious. Symbols allow us to kind of tap into that. It's sort of like I think you have you actually have that example. Like the unconscious is sort of like an oil well or like an untapped water reservoir. And then the symbols allow it's sort of like drilling into there and letting that stuff come into the conscious mind. 
Yeah. Yeah. Another example is the flag. We hear all kinds of stories of a demoralized army. Somebody picks up the flag, waves it around, and, and suddenly everybody is full of energy. They're ready to go and they win the battle. The flag was a symbol that allowed them to tap into this power in their unconscious that allowed them to turn the tide of the battle. So you mentioned, according to Jung, our unconscious has a shadow part. Are, is the shadow the same thing as an archetype? It's not, no. The archetypes are part of the collective unconscious that we all have in common. The shadow is, is a more superficial part of the unconscious, closer to consciousness. And that's part of what Jung called the personal unconscious. And it contains things that were once conscious, but we pushed away. Okay. And so, I mean, what are the problems of the shadow? Like, what, How do they manifest in our lives? So the shadow is the worst of us. It's all the parts of us that we don't want to admit exist. And so we push it down into the unconscious and we think that we've fixed the problem, but in fact, we haven't because what happens is that we lose control over it. Once they go down into the shadow, they become autonomous. And that's why we hear about people who will often behave in extremely uncharacteristic ways in ways that can sometimes destroy their careers, destroy their marriages, destroy their life. And the way we talk about it, I think, harkens back to this idea that we tend to link the unconscious with the supernatural. We say, what on earth possessed him to do that? I love the use of the word possession, right? Yeah. What possessed him to do that? It's, it's almost as if the person were taken over by some demon. And in fact, they were, because demons are just the way we talk about agents in the unconscious. And they were taken over by this agent in their shadow that they unwisely pushed away from consciousness. So what do you do with this? How do you deal with that? Uh, if, you, if you push it down and it just will kind of erupt in a place that's maladaptive, what do you do with the shadow? We all, we all behave in ways that we don't like, right? On a daily basis, we will, we will snap at people that we love and feel bad about it afterwards. And there's two ways to deal with that. One way is to try to forget about it and think about something else because it's painful. But the other way is to really embrace it and say, this is a part of me. This is a part of me I don't like. And this is a part of me that I don't have control over. But the more that we accept it, the more that we can control it. And so I, I think the trick is to allow ourselves to feel these negative feelings, the anger, the envy, the jealousy. If we allow ourselves to feel them without pushing away, we're less likely to act on them. And so we give them full access to our mind, to our consciousness, whereas we give them no access at all to our behavior. I mean, are there benefits of the shadow? Like, I mean, there's downsides, obviously, but do they come with, does it come with benefits? It does. There's an enormous amount of primitive energy in there. I told a story about a doctor who became infuriated with a colleague, and that fury enabled him to write a protocol that would prove his colleague was absolutely wrong. You know, many of us know about the energy and kind of the joy that can come to breaking the rules. You know, if you sneak up on the roof where you're not allowed to be at night to watch the city lights, you're full of energy, you're full of excitement. That's coming from the shadow. That kind of thing only comes when you break the rules. So even though the shadow contains a lot of ugliness, it also contains a lot of beneficial stuff, the primitive energy that we can really make use of. So you, you have this chapter about fairy tales can be used as a way for us to tap into the power of the unconscious. Walk us through this idea. So as I mentioned, when people were trying to make sense of the unconscious, it was so powerful and so alien that they conceived them as supernatural creatures. And that's what fairy tales are about. Fairy tales are about magic, about creatures that possess superhuman power. And what's interesting is that in a lot of cases, these magical creatures are animals. And that makes so much sense because the unconscious is the bestial part of the human mind. And in many cases, 
it is the characters in the fairy tales who are able to make friends with the magical animals who win out in the end. And a lot of times these characters are not the smartest. They are certainly not the richest and they may not even be the strongest, but what they are is the most trusting. They find these magical creatures. The magical creatures often give them advice that doesn't make any sense, but the ones who trust them and do what they say are the ones who win their kingdom in the end. Is there a, a fairy tale in particular that you think really highlights the power of story and helping us kind of confront and manage our unconscious? One of the ones I like is The Golden Bird. That's a story about three brothers who go off in search of this golden bird that will renew the kingdom. And along the way, each of them meets a magical fox that gives them advice. The two older brothers are self-sufficient. They don't need the advice of the magical help. They say, how stupid it would be for me to take advice from a, a lowly animal. But the third brother, who is a little bit weaker, he's the youngest, he's not quite as bright, but he, he's very kind. He says, okay, little fox, you know, let's be friends. I'll help you, you help me. And what happens is that the fox gives him advice about finding this bird and the boy thinks the advice doesn't make any sense. And so he keeps doing the opposite of what the fox says. And the fox gets frustrated with him, but the fox doesn't give up. The fox keeps trying and trying and trying to establish this trusting relationship. Eventually, it, he does, and then everything goes well. And I think that what that tells us is that establishing a working relationship with our unconscious mind is not easy because it's so different from consciousness. It's so alien. It's going to take time, but that's okay. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. We don't have to get it right the first time. I think that coming to terms with our unconscious mind is probably the most important thing we do in life. And so it would be naive to think that it would be simple or something we would get right on the first try. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think a lot of the fairy tales are about that. And I think in modern times, like poets like Robert Bly back in the 80s, like the Iron John thing, it was all about the unconscious becoming integrated with the conscious. And stories can help you do that. Jung also explored other ways that people have tried to tap into and to understand the unconscious often unconsciously, like they don't know they're doing it. And that includes things like alchemy and also tarot cards. Jungian psychologists, they're also known as depth psychologists, past and present. They've used uh, tarot cards to explore archetypes and things like that. I also know Jordan Peterson, like he's used tarot to explore psychological concepts and archetypes. But I think when most people think of tarot, they think of mystical old ladies telling you your fortune or they think about the occult, but they weren't initially used for that. So how can tarot cards be seen as a sometimes unconscious attempt to explore the unconscious? Yeah, you know, you know, the tarot was created just simply as a deck of cards and it was just created to be used for fun. There, there, was, there was nothing special about it. There was nothing about the supernatural, but... It was created in Italy during the Renaissance, and naturally they wanted to make these cards look pretty. So what they did was they put philosophical and mystical symbols on them because it was during the Renaissance that the ancient Greek philosophy had been rediscovered in Europe, and everybody was very, very excited about it. You see these symbols in all kinds of Renaissance art. And so the card makers just grabbed these symbols from art and they decorated their cards with it, not really giving it a second thought, except to say it's pretty and it's fun. Now, what happened was it turns out that these symbols were actually incredibly powerful. And that's why they lasted the thousands of years between the classical period and the Renaissance. And the mystical symbols worked on people's unconscious mind. Over the years, different tarot decks were designed by different people. And what they would do is they would retain the things that were psychologically most powerful, throw away the things that didn't work. And so it became this crowdsourced work where over the years, little by little, it evolved into something more and more psychologically powerful until finally it started, it became so powerful psychologically, people began to think it had magical powers and began using it for divination. So what are some examples of the symbols in the, in the tarot? All right. So the first card is called the fool. 
And you look at it, and, and it's hard to say why it's a fool. It, it's a very handsome young man. He's got a bindle on his shoulder. He, he's going on a journey. He has a dog next to him, and he's about to step over the edge of a cliff. The symbolism of this, I think one way to interpret it is it represents unfallen man. It's this young man who's beautiful and represents perfection. He has an animal companion representing that he is fully aligned. He's fully friendly with the animal side of himself, the unconscious mind. But another thing about this picture is his eyes are closed. Adam and Eve before the fall weren't fully conscious. It was only after they ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil that their eyes were fully opened. And so like Adam and Eve, this young man is going to walk over a cliff. He's going to take a fall. It's going to bring him into the world of imperfection. It's going to bring him to a point where he is no longer comfortable with that animal side of him. He no longer has this easy perfection but his eyes will be opened. And so he will need to seek this unification again on a higher level, on the level of consciousness. And so, yeah, the, the, that card symbolizes this archetype of the fool, right? When it's sort of this energy of being naive, but it comes yeah. with downsides. But also there's like, you have, I mean, you have to be a fool sometimes to, to take on new ventures and to grow. Yeah, that's something that Jordan Peterson talks about a lot. He says that if you're afraid of being a fool, if you're afraid of embarrassing yourself, of looking like an idiot, you can never start something new because when you start something new, you're coming in at ground zero. And so we need to be comfortable with embarrassment and shame and looking like an idiot. Otherwise, we won't be able to grow. Yeah, another one is the magician. It's a really evocative looking card. You got this magician who's pointing up and then down at the same time. What's going on there? That is from one of the most famous alchemical aphorisms, as above, so below. And what that meant was that the things in the macrocosm, the universe, the planets, the stars, the gods and the goddesses, those are reflected in the microcosm down on earth. And so they believed that the gods inhabited metals. The sun god was in gold. The moon was in silver. Venus was in copper, etc. And so as above, so below. In modern times, we can interpret that as what happens in the unconscious mind eventually makes its way into consciousness and shapes our world. And so it's really an acknowledgement that there is this link between what we can see and what we can't see. See, so yeah, a way I've heard described the magician is like scientists are kind of magicians, right? Like they they have this idea of theory. And the goal is to hopefully make it concrete through the scientific process. And then like the magician's got tools. He's got like wands and swords and things he's using. Like same sort of thing. We, we ha- might have this idea for a business or what we want, like, a, I don't know, just some project we want. And we see what it looks like in our, in our brain, but the goal is to use our talents and to make it real in the, the actual world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what is magic? Magic is when the material world is invaded and occupied by things from the spiritual world. So, for example, if you've got a magic lamp, well, there's a genie inside of it. If you drink a magical potion, it's not just wine or lizard eyes or whatever it is. There's there's some force that's invaded that thing that transforms the human being. And in a sense, human beings are magicians exactly as you describe. We take these incorporeal thoughts, an idea for a new business, and through the magic of the human mind, the human brain, those thoughts are able to influence the material world in terms of our moving our body. And that may mean digging a ditch. It may be filling out an application for a bank loan. But somehow the incorporeal ideas in our head are translated to the material world in the form of a new invention, a new business. And in a way, that is a form of magic. So Jung, he thought like fairy tales, these myths, alchemy, tarot, magic numbers. It's a way for us to understand our unconscious. And he thought one of the reasons why we need to kind of deal with or interact with the unconscious is so we can start this process of individuation. What is that for Jung? What is individuation? 
Individuation is the process of bringing together the conscious and the unconscious minds. And individual really has two meanings. One meaning is indivisible. You bring them together and you get a complete whole that cannot be cut apart. And of course, then there's the more common meaning of being different from everybody else. And it's only by bringing these two things together that we can be individual. If we are 100% conscious, all we are is logical, rational, and reasonable. And all logical, rational, reasonable people are pretty much the same. Logic always comes up with the same answers. If we just count on our unconscious mind, it kind of brings us down to the level of animals, animals living strictly by instinct, and they're not all that individual either. But when you combine the two, that's when the magic happens. And that's when you get a true individual person who's unlike anyone else who ever lived. And how does individuation lead to what Jung called transcendence? So transcendence is something that we typically associate with sages or gurus, but scientific studies have found that it happens to ordinary people. For many people, transcendent qualities increase as we get older. And transcendence really has two major qualities. One is that we have less dependence on the outside world for our happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. So for example, transcendent people don't need a whole lot of material goods to be happy. Transcendent people don't need to be told by others how good they are. Transcendent people don't need to have titles and expensive cars, etc., etc. They can draw off of their own solid sense of who they are for that kind of reinforcement. The other aspect of transcendence is a growing capacity to love. It's the ability to extend our love. We all have self-love. And then to extend that beyond ourselves to perhaps our family, spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, and then beyond that to strangers, the entire human race, all living things, and the universe as a whole. As we become more and more transcendent, our ability to love grows and it spreads out. So how do we tap into that? I mean, any like practical things we do? Is it just a matter of, okay, I'm going to go buy a tarot deck and start reading fairy tales? Or I mean, what is, how do we begin this process of individuation and transcendence by tapping into our unconscious? It, it's not an easy thing to do. It's probably, as I said, the most important thing we do in life. And it's very, very hard. There's not one way to do it. There's probably an infinite ways to do it. Probably everybody does it in their own particular way. But, but there's a few ways that have been developed. I think that the starting point is that if you want to develop a relationship with another person, the first thing you want to do is get to know them. You meet someone you want to be friends with. You say, hey, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What kind of work do you do? What are your interests? It's the same with the unconscious. The first step is simply paying attention to what the unconscious is doing. Pay attention to the emotions that happen, to the weird memories of childhood that often pop into our mind, to the funny thoughts that we have that come out of the blue, gut feelings, inspirations, all those kinds of things. And it's not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of focus and it takes time. A lot of these things are going to appear irrational and even random at first, and it's going to take a long time before they start to come together in an understandable way. Another thing we can do is to read fairy tales and other ancient literature about the supernatural. And I don't think we necessarily want to analyze it. We, we don't need to ask, what does this mean? How can I understand this in a psychological way? I think really we just need to let it work on us. Many have had the experience of reading a fairy tale and feeling a little bit off for a few days, feeling maybe a little bit psychologically off balance. For some people, it's so intense that they won't read fairy tales, especially the classic fairy tales like the Brothers Grimm that have both the light and the dark of the unconscious. Those can be very, very upsetting. So trying to read some of this literature and allowing it to do its thing. A more practical approach, I would say, is meditation. 
Meditation does a couple of things. Meditation, because it, it's, it's an exercise in focus and concentration, strengthens the conscious mind. That makes the conscious mind stronger, and so it's better able to pay attention to the things that are going on, the kinds of experiences the unconscious is producing inside the head. And also, the raw instincts of the unconscious are so powerful that if we're able to strengthen the consciousness through meditation, it makes it a little bit safer to open up the door and have confidence that we won't be overwhelmed. Do you like, you're like, you do clinical psychiatry. Like, do you do some of the stuff with people you see? I, I do. I do. Uh, I recommend uh, meditation to a lot of people and it seems to help a lot. In terms of moving towards individuation, I don't do that with the people that I see. And the reason is that the people I see are sick. And individuation is a difficult and a very dangerous endeavor. When you start to open up the channels that separate the conscious from the unconscious, a lot's going to come through there. A lot of really good things, but also a lot of really bad things. And so I think that individuation is something for healthy people to do. And that sick people need to wait until they get healthy before they start that process. Okay, so if you are healthy, start just start paying attention to those unconscious things that pop up. Read fairy tales. You know who does a really great job, if you don't want to read, that kind of, t- I think, taps into a lot of archetypes, the Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. A lot of those episodes, they kind of feel make you feel like disturbed for a couple of days, and they, they tap into like mother archetypes and you know, uh, just different stuff like that. I think Twilight Zone is another great one for that. And then meditation. Well, Daniel, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Uh, They can go to my website, danielzlieberman.com. Fantastic. Well, Daniel Lieberman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett, thank you so much for having me. My guest was Dr. Daniel Lieberman. He's the author of the book, Spellbound. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, danielzlieberman.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash unconscious. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android and iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost.